0: There's honestly so much that we could talk about with regards to what Jesus does for us every single day. And what a what a blessing it is when you stop and take a few moments to acknowledge what God has done for you from day to day, moment to moment, and how compassionate He is, how loving He is, how much He truly cares. Tonight, we're gonna to be looking at a passage from 1 Thessalonians chapter three. 1 Thessalonians chapter three. So I'd invite you to turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter three this evening. And we'll be looking at the last two verses of chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, in a sermon that I've titled, Be Compassionate, Be Compassionate. In the modern city of Ariel, which is actually located about 40 miles due north of the city of Jerusalem, what was previously known as Samaria, it served a pastor of a small congregation, of mostly Palestinian Christians. There were some in the town of Ariel who hated those Christians deeply. The pastor and his family learned the depths of that hatred on the typically joyous day of Purim in 2008. What was traditionally a day filled with exchanging of gifts of food and drink to friends and family to celebrate the preservation of the Jews from complete extinction at the hands of Haman, which is recorded for us in the book of Esther, it turned bad really quick. A gift basket was delivered to the house of the pastor's family. Only this was not a basket delivered with good intentions. The pastor's 15-year-old son was home alone when the basket was delivered, and he opened the package expecting to find some, some candy and some sweets to enjoy and never expected the explosion that ripped into his young body. Hundreds of shards of metal, safety pins, screws, all sorts of objects of the like pierced him and left him in critical condition. He was blinded from the shrapnel that was embedded in his eyes. Both his eardrums were punctured, leaving him with significant hearing loss. The boy spent five months in the hospital, lost a few toes due to amputation, and endured nearly a year in a pressure suit to assist in his healing from the severe burns that he experienced. Now, thanks to strategically placed cameras, the assailant was eventually identified and caught. When the boy was questioned by a reporter about his attitude toward those who did this evil to him, the 15-year-old replied, I don't feel hate. I don't see a reason for hate. I could say they're blinded by their hate. They think it's the right thing. You can't blame a blind person for running over you, so I don't see how I could blame them. It's just not there. It wasn't there from the beginning. I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just not there, no hate at all. After several successful surgeries, the boy's vision was eventually restored. It's quite possible that his physical blindness for that time helped explain his compassion on the spiritual blindness of those who do not know Christ. The pastor and his family, they responded to the attack by demonstrating Christ's compassion to all of their neighbors, knowing that at any time in the future, they might once again be the target for another attack. Rather than retreating in fear, The pastor and his family began serving at a local soup kitchen that provides a medical clinic and clothes to those that are in need in the community. Now, most of us will never have our capacity of compassion tested in a way similar to that in our lifetime. But certainly in these chaotic days, we're being tested to decide if we're going to be self-centered or if we're going to be compassionate and caring to those around us. When we start to face hard times, when we see such things as the economy struggling, we generally see one of two reactions. Some people are fueled by cynicism and despair and will harden their hearts. They'll go into self-preservation mode and they'll adopt the mindset, well, it's everyone for themselves. I need to take care of myself. Wake me up when the economy turns around. They panic. They often, this is more of a joke, but they'll sleep with their wallets under their pillows. The other response we see is that what we should expect from the children of God. It is the behavior of those who are living in a world that is full of hurt, but they're seeking to minister on behalf of God to those that are in need. Our attitude in tough times should be to protect and even extend our spirit of compassion. We shouldn't become so disconnected from everyone and and everything around us to where we hunker down and begin stockpiling things that we don't ever end up needing. This message of compassion was what the Holy Spirit instructed the Apostle Paul to write to those that were in Thessalonica who were going through their own difficult time. I want you to notice what we see. I'm actually going to start with verse number 11 here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I'll read to the end of the chapter, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, I'll begin at verse 11, and I'll read down through verse number 13. Now, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, the context of what Paul is discussing here is the return of Christ, which he references there at the last portion of verse number 13. He says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. He didn't say that when Christ would return, but he says the language suggests that it could happen at any time. And the Bible says it so you can be sure that it will indeed happen. We're not setting dates. We're not part of this group that does set dates. God has made it very clear that only God the Father knows. So we're not going to set dates, but therefore knowing that Christ is going to return one day because the Bible does say that he will, Paul didn't tell these believers to stop everything that they're doing, to barricade themselves in their homes, to sit patiently on their couches until that glorious day comes. He didn't say, hunker down and do nothing and wait for it. He instructs them to remain busy serving the Lord. This book of 1 Thessalonians is one of the most important writings about the Lord's return. Paul greatly desired to visit the believers here in Thessalonica and help them through some of the problems they were dealing with, but that was evidently not God's will for the Apostle Paul. In fact, Paul explains the reasoning behind why he was not able to be with them just the previous chapter. In chapter 2, look at verses 17 and 18. He explains why he can't be there. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, he says, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan hindered us, he says. This is a common practice of Satan, to present himself as an obstacle to the people of God. God, however, is never taken by surprise. And he turns misfortunes, he turns times of crisis into his own advantage to show forth his glory and power greater than ever before. Think about how God did this here with regards to the Apostle Paul. He says there in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18, that he wants to be there. That he wanted to see the believers in Thessalonica face to face. That he wanted to come to help them and nurture them and and help them overcome some of the issues that they've been dealing with. But he says, Satan prevented that from happening. I can't be with you face to face, he says. So it has, almost seems like Satan put up a roadblock and is going to prevent something great from happening. But what actually happens is that if Paul was able to be in Thessalonica, if he were able to go, if Satan never hindered him, then we most likely would not have the amazing letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians in our Bible. We would be without the invaluable truths that are packed into these small letters that we have been relying on for nearly 2,000 years. Satan may have hindered them, but God still won. And now we have these two amazing letters in the Bible that tell us about what we need to know regarding the return of Christ and what we should be doing as believers in the meantime. It may appear that Satan wins a few battles here and there, but don't ever forget that God has already won the war. The Apostle Paul had no idea how God would use what he viewed as an inconvenience and a stumbling block. And quite honestly, we rarely live long enough to see the ultimate fruit of our own and personal service to God. Remind yourself of that truth the next time you're feeling discouraged. Remind yourself the next time that you're feeling inadequate, that you're feeling insufficient in what you're doing and where God has called you to be because you're not seeing the fruit and the benefits and the product that you want to see. God sometimes doesn't deliver until years later, sometimes even long after we're passed on to the next life. In the present, things may not be looking as good as what you hope, but that doesn't mean God is not working something greater that will fully be revealed long after your life here on earth is over. I don't think Paul ever dreamed that these letters that he wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would be impacting billions of lives. As he wrote, these are two small books. Paul is also, uh, as the Holy Spirit led him to put pen to paper, written almost half of the New Testament. I don't think he ever imagined just the impact that it would have as he was able to put pen to paper and the Word of God was compiled to what we have today. So many lives have been touched by the writing. And it's not the Apostle Paul. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Bible. But what an incredible thing that the Lord used him to do. From his perspective, he was writing in First and Second Thessalonians to encourage a small church that was made up of many of his friends, friends who were suffering, friends who were persecuted for loving Christ, struggling just to get by. And this is all he thought this letter was going to be. They were experiencing hard times and really not too different than some of the things that we're facing today. So how did they handle their circumstances? Did they give in to self-pity? Did they harden their hearts? Did they isolate themselves from everyone else as some people today do? As things around us seem to be getting worse, inflation seems to rise, prices increase, tensions escalate. How are we today responding to all of the issues that we're dealing with? Are we panicking? Are we getting stressed? Are we becoming fearful? Don't forget that what life does to us depends on what life finds within us. When you were in school, think back as far as back you can go, how you did on a test was contingent upon how much you studied and prepared ahead of time. If you failed the test, you couldn't blame the test or the school. You had every opportunity to study ahead of time, to prepare ahead of time, and to do as well as you could. And Paul knew that the believers here in Thessalonica, he knew them personally and he knew that they could be strong, that they could be confident under trials, but he knew they had to prepare properly before those trials came. Otherwise, they would be severely overmatched by what life would throw at them. Paul understood their discouragement, and that is why he wanted to boost their confidence and stop them from giving in to self-pity, motivating them to serve God with a deeper resolve than what they ever had before. That is why what we see in our passage here this evening is essentially a prayer that he prays for the believers there in Thessalonica. Listen again at what it says here in verses 11 through 13. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is a prayer that he's praying here for the believers. He's encouraging them. These believers were under immense pressure. They were dealing with so much stress. How do you pray? How do you pray for people who are dealing with these issues? Do you ask God for divine protection? Do you ask God to give them courage as they're going through these trials? Do you ask God to remove the problems from their lives or possibly remove them from the problematic situation? These are all viable options. These are prayers that I personally prayed for people who are in distress. I prayed for God to remove the problem. I prayed for God to remove them from the situation. I've I've prayed such things for people who are in distress. But Paul takes a different approach. He prays and he asks God to, to teach these believers to be more loving and compassionate toward one another and to all people in the midst of their troubles. Now, this isn't often the first thing we think of as far as what they needed to hear right now. If we took a poll and said, what do you think these struggling believers need to hear at this moment? Do you think they need to hear that they need to work harder and serve God more faithfully? It's probably not at the top of our list as to what kind of, what kind of advice we would give but this is exactly what was going to help them through this difficult situation. It's often not the case that we stop and consider why God has allowed certain problems in our lives in the first place. Usually we get so focused on trying to figure out how to get ourselves out of the problems or how to deal with the problem that we find ourselves in that we rarely consider why God allowed it to come into our lives to begin with. What he might be teaching us in the midst of the problems that we're dealing with. Many of, us, many of us don't take a moment to consider that God actually allows these moments, these problems, to teach us to have a heart of compassion as Paul is trying to urge these believers. We don't develop a compassionate heart through a problem-free life. Problems have a way of humbling us, and humility opens our eyes to see the needs of others around us. The more we can look to continue serving God when life is going tough, it will prevent us from becoming bitter. And this was Paul's prayer for these believers. I want you to notice, first of all, the nature of compassion. As we're urging one another to be compassionate, notice, first of all, the nature of compassion. Again, in verse number 12, he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. I don't need to show you all sorts of charts and graphs to illustrate that life in America and life across the world is getting progressively worse. I think we can all agree that it's not getting better, but we are trending worse than day one when God first created uh, the world. Even on our best days, this world is still dark and cold and cruel. In our present circumstances, we expect more cynicism. We expect more hardened hearts. Despite the Increased activity in social media and social networking, we have become increasingly unsocial, ironically. For so many different reasons, we don't want to be around other people. And we come up with all sorts of excuses to avoid instances that puts us around large groups of people. We still have occasions where we'll fellowship and we'll spend time with others, but as a whole, those instances where we're gathering together have decreased. We're more disconnected than we've ever been, and it's only getting progressively worse. The day is quickly approaching that we're only going to be communicating with one another through screens, whether it's on a computer or a television or a phone. I feel that we're gonna be completely disconnected and that's, that's gonna be the only source of connection, if you can call it that, that we're gonna have. And this is the time that the world needs believers, most of all. We need more faithful and devoted followers of Christ who aren't concerned with how bad the weather looks outside or what current political climate is. The sad and difficult times are good for us to realize how awesome our God is. God's glory shines the brightest when the storm clouds of life are rolled away. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter uh, how many issues you're going to face in life. The abounding love and the compassion of God is more than enough for you to share that with someone else. Author Shannon Etheridge uh, recounts a terrible day from her 11th grade year in high school. Attempting to apply lipstick while driving her car on a bumpy country road, she struck and killed a bicyclist. That was the beginning of her nightmare. What stunned her the most was that the victim's husband said, upon being told that he had lost his wife, his first question was, How is the girl? Was she hurt? It was inconceivable to Etheridge that anyone could take such a devastating blow and have immediate concern for the author of the tragedy. The night before the funeral, she forced herself to visit the bereaved husband. She says, As I entered the house, I looked down the entry corridor to see a big, burly, middle-aged man coming toward me, not with animosity in his eyes, but with his arms open wide. The man was a Wycliffe Bible translator named Gary Jarstfer. He gave her a large, compassionate embrace, and she dissolved into tears. Over and over, she wept the words, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Jarster gently spoke to Ethridge about the life and the legacy of his beloved wife. He added, God wants to strengthen you through this. God is going to use you. Gary Jarster insisted that all charges against the distraught 11th grader be dropped. Then he began to look out for her and encourage her in the development of her life. I think such love and compassion is rarely seen in this world today. The love that is capable of such compassion is not found within us, but only as we are in Christ. Our natural human instinct is not to be compassionate to one another when life is going tough. Typical human nature urges us to look deep, deep within ourselves to find the answers for comfort and consolation. The Spirit of God encourages us to go outward and become all the more loving and all the more forgiving, even to the point of forgiving ourselves. Therefore, when the believers in Thessalonica were being treated so poorly for simply loving and worshiping God, Paul didn't pray that they would be stronger if they fought against oppression together. He didn't pray that and then ask God to remove the oppressors. He prayed that the believers would abound in love and compassion to those who oppress them. Again, he says, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. This is what Jesus also said in Matthew chapter five and verses 43 and 45. He says, you have heard that it hath been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. The example that we are to follow as believers in everything in our lives is Christ. Christ demonstrated the greatest love and the greatest compassion for a race of men who didn't deserve anything at all when he took the sins of the world upon his own shoulders, nailed them to the cross. Everything that we do as believers should mirror what Christ did for us there on the cross. We should be loving. We should be compassionate. We should be helping people with their problems. We should carry their crosses for them. This is how we can turn tragedies into triumphs. This is what the world needs more of today. Imagine how much this world would be different if every Christian woke up tomorrow morning and decided to love everyone around them the way that Christ loves us. Only God can show us how to love this way. Left to our own personal efforts, we would ruin every relationship that we would ever make. And this is the reason that we cannot be upset with the unsaved who make a mess of all their relationships. Why would we expect anything different? They don't know how to love unconditionally. They don't know how to truly show compassion. Why should we expect something different from people who don't know the love and compassion of Christ? It is the same reason we don't get upset if a blind person steps on our toes. They don't know any better. It can be frustrating at times to read the news and to read story after story of chaos and and turmoil and complaining and misery. But at the same time, we need to remind ourselves that we're dealing with a world that doesn't know Christ personally, and these are the results of sin. A world living apart from Christ is a world that is full of anger. It's a world that is full of little forgiveness, and we see that. A world of so many demands, but a world of so little service. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow once wrote, he said, if we could only read the secret history of our enemies— We should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. I think there's a lot of truth to that. It takes a godly compassion to live with such an outlook. God wants us to be compassionate in the midst of the craziness of this life. He wants us to compassionately look upon the hurting hearts of those around us and use those instances to show God's love through kindness and compassion. Notice second... The practice of compassion. We've seen the nature of compassion. Notice, secondly, the practice of compassion. Look again at verse number 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Compassion needs to be practiced with everyone. There is a basic standard for love that is expressed in 1 John chapter 4 and verses 20 and 21. The Bible says, if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. Basic, basic standard for love. Jesus started this when he said in John 13 and verses 34 and 35, he said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. I heard the story of an angry driver who was tailgating everyone. He was laying on his horn. He was honking when people were stopped at a yellow light and just flailing his arms around in frustration, visibly upset at every driver around him. And then in his rearview mirror, he saw flashing lights. Soon the police officer was asking the man to exit his vehicle with his hands up. The man was arrested. He was taken to the police station where he was searched. He was photographed. He was fingerprinted and then placed in a holding cell. And after a while, the arresting officer came and got him from the holding cell. He returned to the man all of his personal effects. The officer was very apologetic. He said, no, I made a mistake. I was behind you in traffic as you were blowing your horn and, and making all sorts of obscene hand gestures and cursing at all the cars and people in front of you. When I saw the what would Jesus do bumper sticker on your chrome and your chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk, I assumed you had stolen the car. Whether we realize it or not, people are watching everything that we're doing. Especially especially when they know that we're Christians. It has been said that Christians are the only Bibles that some people will ever study. It should be that our walk, or our talk rather, matches our walk. Even if consistent love and compassion don't come easy, we should demonstrate consistency with God's word. The Bible makes it clear that we're to love one another, but now we get to that difficult part. If we only stick with the basic standard of God's word to love one another, we really wouldn't be that different than the world. God calls us to a much higher standard of love and compassion. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46, he says, For if you love them which love you, what reward have you? That's the easy thing, right? Loving those that love you. Done. I can get on board there. But he says, do not even the publicans the same. And this is the lesson. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. We almost wish there was a period right there. And then he says, and toward all men. Can we scratch that part out? No. Abound in love one toward another. Done. I can love my brother. But he says, and toward all men, even as we do toward you. The simple standard is expressed when he says here, you're to love one another. Fellow believers, the higher standard is, is that following phrase, and toward all men. We should love fellow believers. That's where it starts. If we can't even do that, there's a huge problem. But it has to start with our love toward fellow Christians. The higher standard sends a much higher message. We should love those who are easy to love. But the true test of our love and compassion comes in loving those who are difficult to love. If we're going to love according to this higher standard that he has set here, we need some serious help. Because it's hard enough loving some of you. Oh, I'm not going to point at anyone, but you know who you are. No, I'm kidding. It's hard. Because even in fellow believers, even in a church where we're a church family, some of us are hard to get along. I can be hard to get along. I get it. We need the Holy Spirit's power if we're called to a higher standard to love those that we're not even friends with. The unsaved are selective to whom they show love and compassion to. But God has called us as believers never to be selective. Where the unsaved are typically led by their feelings, believers need to be led by their actions. The typical human instinct is that we won't show love and compassion until we like somebody. God has called us to practice love and compassion to all men, regardless of whether or not we know them, let alone if we like them or not. There are going to be people that you never like. And by our natural human inclination, you're never going to be led based on how you feel towards them to show them compassion. We usually try to keep our distance from those that we particularly don't like and will even harbor ill feelings towards them at times. And the more those feelings fester, the more it turns into bitterness. But what happens if you ignore those ill feelings you have towards those you don't like and you instead practice love and compassion towards them? You know what happens? What happens? You find that friendliness with those people isn't as bad as what you thought. In Romans chapter 12 and verses 20 and 21, it tells us, It says, Therefore, if an enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the way that we should be living, leading with our actions. And not allowing our feelings to dictate who we show compassion to. The Christian life is all about walking by faith and trusting God to deliver the outcome. Trust that obedience to God's word by practicing love and practicing compassion first without allowing your feelings to get in your way. And that will yield positive results every single time. Sometimes God allows the craziness to see how we're going to respond to difficult personalities in our lives. Whether we'll be obedient when it requires a sacrifice on our part notice third the example of compassion the example of compassion look at verse 12 again he says and the lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men And notice that last phrase he says even as we do toward you even as we do toward you paul was saying as you have seen compassion demonstrated through me and through fellow laborers go and do the same when paul first visited thessalonica He didn't exactly have the warmest of welcomes. He was accused of turning the world upside down. But the more he persisted and the more he allowed his love and compassion for these people to abound, their barriers came down and it developed into something so incredible. Notice what he did. Turn back to chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and look at verse number 2. He did several things here to... Evidence his own personal compassion to them. Chapter 1 and verse number 2, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, all, making mention of you in our prayers. He first starts by thanking God for them and praying for them, praying for them regularly. We give thanks to you, to God, always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So when he says in chapter 3 and verse number 12, even as we do towards you, be compassionate towards one another as we have been towards you. He's shown them how he's been compassionate. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. The best way to grow to love someone is to be constant in prayer over them and their needs. And then notice what he does. The next chapter, chapter 2 and verse number 2. Look at what he does. Again, further evidence and further examples of his own personal compassion. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, he says, But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. He preached the gospel to them. He prayed for them regularly, Thank God for them, and he preach the gospel to them faithfully. People may not always like the gospel preached to them. But that is what we're called to do and that is the greatest evidence of our love and compassion for them as we're faithful to preach the gospel to people that don't want to hear it. Look at verses 7 and 8 in chapter 2 because he's further showing examples of his compassion. Verses 7 and 8 in chapter 2, he says, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He was gentle, he says, caring and affectionate toward them. This is what our compassion should look like. And then look at verse nine there in chapter two. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail, For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. He's saying he sacrificed for them. This is the best proof of our compassion. Paul was telling them here that basically he refused any sort of payment. He was working to support himself. He didn't want them to pay him. He just wanted to preach the gospel to them. Now, Paul wasn't always like this. In fact, in his early days, he spent persecuting the church and persecuting Christians, but his latter days were spent showing the people that he'd been persecuting previously, showing them now compassion. The only thing that changed in the Apostle Paul's life is the fact that he was saved by the grace of God. Jesus Christ changed his life as he was on the road to Damascus. Notice fourth, the effect of compassion. The effect of compassion. Verse number 13, back in chapter 3. He says, to the end He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This shows us why we're to be loving, why we're to be compassionate towards others. We're striving to be more like Christ every single day, and we do this by following his example. Being Christ-like isn't about how many verses you can recite or how eloquent your prayers can be. It is about loving people and ministering to their needs. The more difficult Christ's life became, The more loving, the more compassionate, the more forgiving he was. Following the example of Christ will bring about a blameless heart, as it says there in verse 13. And then fifth, the last point, notice the benefits of compassion. Again, verse 13, "...to the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God." even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There are so many benefits for us when we live the way God intended on us living. When we practice showing compassion, it helps us to see the needs of others, and it ultimately opens us up to the reality of God and his purpose for our lives. In this day and age that we're living, there are going to be numerous situations that cause stress and that will bring us all sorts of tension. The opportunities for the root of bitterness to spring up within us will increase. It will become easier and easier for us to have and hold grudges against one another. It's possible that we'll even give in to some of these impulses. We will then try to rationalize these things by telling ourselves that we've had a really hard time of late. If you only knew what was on my plate, if you only knew what my week was like, you'd understand why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling and why I'm acting the way I'm acting. You know, God would even give me a free pass if he knew the week that I was going through. But that only starts us down a slippery slope toward living in the despair of this world where no happiness is present and only misery is experienced. There will never be a convenient time for us to live the godly life. When we're practicing compassion and we're making it a point to be patient, to be kind, and to be loving towards one another, the results will be that joy will transcend all of our circumstances. You know what transcend? We've looked at, studied this word as far as the study of the holiness. Rise above. It'll be well up above all the horrible circumstances of this life, when we're practicing compassion, joy will transcend those circumstances. The only way that the world is going to be changed for good is through Christians demonstrating the compassion that we see in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer here this evening? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the encouragement that we have, Lord, to to be compassionate. I know, Lord, this is certainly so much easier said than done. Our natural inclination, Lord, is to go against that, is to harbor bitterness, is to remain frustrated thinking, Lord, that we are causing pain to those that have wronged us, that feel like we're getting revenge. But Lord, I pray that we would understand that the example we're to follow after is that of Christ. And Lord, that is not at all the mind of Christ. May we embrace the mind of Christ, Lord, who was compassionate, who was forgiving. Lord, in all these different circumstances. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have tact, Lord, to approach one another with meekness and fear. And Lord, even as we are called to admonish and forbear one another, may we do so in a spirit of love. Lord, we love you and we're just so thankful for all that you've done for us. And may we be such an example of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, that we demonstrate this compassion that we're called to show. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen.